Good morning. The views expressed on this show do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the California Board of Regents. The views today take up what's at risk before and after 9-11. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 11, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. 56 days till the midterm elections. State primaries being held this week, and that's the last of the primaries, are in Rhode Island tomorrow, Wednesday, and Thursday in New York, and that does it. If you have a friend or family member living in Maine or Alaska, their senators are waiting for your calls. 202-224-5225. Today, we mark a somber 17th anniversary of 9-11 with voices reminding us of what's been and continues to be at risk in this nation of ours. First, we'll hear from Melina Abdullah, co-founder of the LA Black Lives Matter. She'll break down persistent structural barriers that African Americans are at risk with. And in the second segment, Nuha Isak will join me in studio and will let sink in the huge divide that current immigration policy poses for her family in Yemen, her friends and her colleagues that are still there. We'll be right back after a very short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Malina Abdullah, Chair of and Professor at the Department of Pan-African Studies at California State University, Los Angeles, and a co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. She serves on the Los Angeles County Human Relations Commission and is a recognized expert on race, gender, class, and social movements. Ms. Melina Abdullah is the author of numerous articles and book chapters with subjects ranging from political coalition building to womanist mothering. I recently heard her keynote at a special forum in LA, Black Lives Still Matter, at the Left Coast Forum. She's coming from activist stock, and she takes up the role as an academic intrinsically linked to broader struggles for oppressed people. She's led in the fight for ethnic studies in the K through 12 and university systems, and was a part of the historic victory that made ethnic studies a requirement in the Los Angeles Unified School District. As part of the original group of organizers forming Black Lives Matter, she serves as a Los Angeles chapter lead and contributes to the national leadership. She is co-host and co-producer of the weekly program, Beautiful Struggle, which airs on KPFK. Dr. Abdullah also serves on boards for the Black Community, Clergy and Labor Alliance, California Faculty Association, LA, LA African American Women's Public Policy Institute, LA Community Action Network, National Association for Ethnic Studies, Reverence Wellness Salon, and Strategic Concepts in Organizing and Policy Education. 
among the many awards she's garnered, the most recent ones are YWCA's Racial Justice Award, two Fannie Lou Hamer Awards, Sacred Sisters Award, California Teachers Association Human Rights Award, and the 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 Black Community Clergy and Labor Alliance Ella Baker Award, Freedom Now Award, and a Comunitas Award. She was recognized by LA Weekly as one of the 10 most influential Los Angeles leaders, Urban Girl of the Year by Two Urban Girls, and one of the 15 fiercest sisters of 2015 by Fierce. She's appeared on MSNBC, CNN, TV One, ABC, PBS, KTLA, KCETBET, Free Speech TV, and Al Jazeera, and is featured in the films 13th, which was required viewing by now for everybody. When Justice Isn't Just and Justice or Else, she completed her bachelor's degree at Howard University and her PhD from USC. She comes to us today from Los Angeles. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Melina Abdullah. Thank you. Thank you for reading that whole bio. That never happens. But, it never happens. Oh, <laughs> no, thank no, you no, for it surely, it surely does, because who wants to miss out on those nuggets of your intentional, willful, womanist contributions all over? Well, we're, the, here's the softball, but it's as comprehensive as I can make it softball. Let's start. Let's say, Melina Abdullah, you have a Nike-sized public relations budget. What kind of ad would you produce? What would you convey? Well, I think the ad that was produced is simply brilliant, um, and that's not to say that Nike is now some um, anti-capitalist social justice organization that doesn't profit from the um, extreme oppression of its workers, but I think the ad, the message of the ad, was absolutely beautiful, and so I wouldn't change that at all. I think that what's embedded in there is um, both an honoring of Colin Kaepernick's work, but also this concept of sacrifice, right? So the idea that if we're going to struggle, it's not going to just be easy. It's not the same as sitting on your couch and watching, you know, the Real Housewives or, uh, you know, whatever reality show has taken your attention, is serving as the current weapon of mass distraction, as Cornell West puts it, um, that there's work that goes into it. And um, I think that this idea of being willing to sacrifice everything really brings us back to who are we as human beings. What are we created to do and what is our commitment to um, living in that purpose? And so I love that ad and um, that's the way that I would interpret it. And well, I'm, there are some social Darwinian kinds of features to that, you know, that has a it's a that has a kind of a capitalist thread that follows there. So I don't know if you could see if for well, not to overspend time on this because you and I have a lot to cover here in, the, in this time together. <laughs> is whether you could see some of Colin Kaepernick's words coming through that tack on to what Nike wants us to think about in terms of Nike's productions, but what Colin Kaepernick himself wants to put out there. Right. Well, I, I don't know how many of your listeners have listened to the Amnesty International acceptance speech, but I'd absolutely encourage everyone to do that, especially today. Right. Um, right, where he won. I love how he opens that speech with an honoring of Eric Reed, who was by his side 
in the kneeling, right? And so, you know, we live in a society where they want to exalt a single leader. And in this case, you know, Colin Kaepernick, because he's born um, much of the kind of backlash, you know, has been the name that we recognize. But I love that he recognized that he wasn't alone, that he had a brother in the struggle. And I thought that was absolutely beautiful for him to pay tribute to him in that way. The piece of that acceptance speech that I appreciated the most was that um, we protest, this is what he said, we protest because we love ourselves and we love our people. And love is at the root of our resistance. And I thought that was the most powerful statement. I think that um, the way in which especially mainstream media has attempted to recast the work that we do as organizers is um, as if our movement comes out of anger. Well, we have a rage, but that rage is also rooted in love, right? We're enraged when they kill our people. We're enraged when we think about the way in which 30-year-old mother Riddell Jones was gunned down and her children will never see her again. We're enraged when we think about Botem Jean, who was just killed in Dallas, Texas, and the kind of sympathy in the story is going with the white murderous police officer who concocted this ridiculous story that's changed over the last couple of days about she thought it was her own apartment and that's why she shot this black man to death. Um, And so we have a right to be enraged um, and we need to understand that that rage is ultimately rooted in love because we're connected as people, right? So When Black Lives Matter started, um, you know, we started after George Zimmerman was acquitted in the killing of Trayvon Martin. And um, there was a rage that I absolutely felt for George Zimmerman. There was a rage at the justice system that could um, stand alongside someone who murdered a 17-year-old boy who was simply walking home to watch a basketball game, what 17-year-old boys should be doing, right? Right. Um, There was a rage there, but then I also, what moved me, it's not the rage that actually moves us, right? What moved me is some people will remember that that, uh, President Obama said, um, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Well, I have a son. Right. I have three children, but I have a son who actually looks like Trayvon Martin. And so every time they would show Trayvon's face, he looks like now an eight year old version of Trayvon Martin. Right. Then he was three. But every time they would show Trayvon's face, I would see my own son. I'm in and I would see him in Trayvon's face and I would cry for Sabrina Fulton, you know, and. I would mourn for her, and I would also, you know, want to love on her and love the spirit of Trayvon. And so I think the most powerful thing, what I would add to the Nike ad, right, um, how I would expand using Colin's words are that, you know, is is that statement that love is at the root of our resistance. So the love theme, um, the love aspect and looking at the the hate 
engendered in the messages. It, so it brings me to uh, one of the many structural aspects I want to bring up with you. I hope we, I hope we can get in half of them. So that the zero-sum game, it's framing all identity politics. And so it's sort of, let's take the love and the fear mongering, that love is taking that zero frame, zero game frame out of the discussion, opening up with that, the love as the root of resistance, that love is an expansive, inclusive tack. It's only getting this frame of the zero sum game. It's, it's only lost in 99% of the debates that I've ever heard. How do you, so I guess this is your prescription then, is it Malina Abdullah, to remove that frame that when one person gains, the other person loses. Absolutely. We have to reject that. We have to understand that that is also a frame that's rooted in capitalism, right? This idea that we're in constant competition with one another, right? Freedom comes when people, the people, recognize that our interests are actually aligned. We are not each other's competitors. We're each other's coalition partners. And I also want to add on that as we talk about love, I want to be clear about the kind of love that I'm talking about, right? The kind of love that I'm talking about because that term can also be appropriated, right? Yeah. Love is not weak. Love does not mean pacifism. Right? Love doesn't mean sit back and do nothing. Love doesn't mean only pray and don't work. Love doesn't mean that if I just love my next door neighbor and exist on a surface level, then that's enough. Love is what Mama Harriet Tubman did. Right? Love is taking the freedom of your people. Right? Love means fighting and struggling and winning together. And so when you talk about the zero-sum game, right, zero, a zero-sum game, if you submit to that, that's not really love, right? Like you said, love is expansive, right? So we can engage. Um, later on in the day, I'll be with the Occupy ICE folks, right? And so um, you may know that in Los Angeles, they've been camped out in front of the detention center now for 84 days, right? Right. And... There is a narrative, especially in some, some conservative communities, right, that deportations are helpful to so-called real Americans, right? That's the narrative that they're giving. That's the narrative that Trump and his regime and band of evil and all of those he's whipped up on his side of things kind of are espousing, right? The truth is... The truth is, and our side of it is, that we have to stand for right, right? We have to stand for righteousness, right? And that there is no, it's not um, immigrants coming in that are stealing your jobs, right? It is the capitalist class that's trying to eke out as much profit as possible that is stealing our jobs, right? It's the... um, denigration of work, of labor, and of workers that are stealing our jobs. And so that's what we have to fight, and we do better when we have more on our side. And so we have to engage in that kind of collective struggle. We have to understand that immigrant immigrant rights are important, and just as we're saying immigrant rights are important, it also means that black lives still matter, right? It also means that we have to be struggling for indigenous rights. It also means that we can talk about immigrant contributions to this country and we can't do so neglecting 
that enslaved people built this country, right? And that we have to lift up our ancestors to, who were African and indigenous and that all of us are in this together and it doesn't, we don't have the luxury of simply engaging in a single struggle. We have to engage in all of them at the same time. So in the interest of time, we're going to have to gloss over. Maybe you could weigh in very briefly. This is really unfair to you, but um, there is a new police chief in Los Angeles. Uh, He's come through the ranks, and we have the SB 1421 that's trying to improve police transparency. It's pending the governor's signature, and there's there are 400 deaths that have occurred in the Los Angeles Police Department jurisdiction, and there have been no charges. I don't know if there's a way to address those before we move into some of the voter suppression issues I want to talk about and see what Black Lives Matters, Black Lives Matters is doing with that. Sure, I can be very quick. Um, the police chief, the new police chief, and I want to lift up that we got a new police chief because Black Lives Matter, white people for black lives and allies for a year and a half pushed for the removal of Charlie Beck, vigorously pushed, demanded that he step down. He wound up stepping down. Um, actually, two and a half years we pushed for it. A year and a half um, before the end of his term, he stepped down, um, and we won that, right? So we absolutely wanted Charlie Beck out. He was responsible for the most murderous police force in the country. What we have as a replacement is Michael Moore. Michael Moore actually pull the trigger into police shootings, right? He's actually talking about expanding LAPD when we know that the most dangerous thing for black people is increased police contact. contact. So the more that we see police, the more in danger our lives are, right? And so he said that he wants to put police in every park, on every uh, bar stool, and in every uh, church pew. We don't want that. We want youth workers in parks, right? We want mental health workers who are actually addressing uh, mental health concerns in our community and so on. And so that's what we think of this current police chief. The only way that we'll be able to kind of um, temper what's happening in terms of expansionist policing is by being involved. So we want everybody to attend the Los Angeles Police Commission meetings and make their voices heard. Tonight's meeting is at 6.30. Um, It's one of only six community meetings that they have. All the rest are in LAPD headquarters. Um, So we want folks to come out tonight to that. Which community Um, And we want them to come out every Tuesday to the ones in headquarters on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. With regard to SB 1421, that again is a victory that we won. This is the sacrifice. This is the struggle. It's the first bill that Black Lives Matter has ever co-sponsored. We have passed it through the legislature over the will and over the dollars of police unions. So on the eve of its vote, um, the police unions donated the maximum amount to key legislators. $4,400 a piece. They said it was a coincidence that it came the night before the vote, Um, but people are greater than money. So we got on the phones. We made sure that those uh, legislators didn't flip, even though the police unions attempted to buy them off, and we got that passed through the legislature last Friday night. Um, We need the governor to sign it. So this is where your listeners can take action. We want them to 
tweet at the governor. Tweet at Jerry Brown Gov and tell him to sign SB 1421. What that bill will do is make it so that when police kill people, we have access to those investigations. Right now, California is one of very few states that when police kill people, those investigations remain private. We know that when they become public, there's an opportunity for people to demand justice. And then lastly, you asked about the 400 people killed in L.A. County. Um, L.A. County the state of California and the city of Los Angeles are all the most murderous jurisdictions, right? So LAPD is um, the place that you're most likely to get killed by police in terms of cities. The county is the county where you're most likely to get killed. And California is the state that you're most likely to get killed, right? The county, though, We've seen, I think we're up to 417 killings in the last five years, 417 killings at the hands of law enforcement, and not a single officer has been charged. We have a district attorney who refuses to prosecute police when they kill our people, even when, in the case of Brendan Glenn, who was killed in Venice, his killer... Was, uh, the, the officer who killed him was actually recommended from charge, for charges by murderous police chief Charlie Beck. So Charlie Beck actually offered up this officer and said, you should charge him. And Jackie Lacey, the district attorney, said no. Right. Um, similarly, Keisha Michael and Mark Quentin Sandlin were killed in a hail of bullets while sleeping in their car. They were the parents of seven children. Um, those officers, because of community pressure led by the family of Keisha Michael, um, we were able to get those five officers fired. Um, Jackie Lacey refused to prosecute those officers. And what happens when the officers aren't prosecuted, even if they're fired or disciplined in their home departments, they can just go get a job with other departments, which is what most of them do. So we have to get them prosecuted. So every Wednesday, and we've been there now for 47 weeks, um, we are in front of Jackie Lacey's office. We're always led by the families of those who've been killed by police. And we're demanding now, initially we started demanding that she prosecute killer cops. Now we're realizing she will never prosecute killer cops. She won't even meet with us. In fact, she started criminalizing the people, including the families, who were out there demanding that these cops be prosecuted. Um, we're now saying that she has to go. So we're, we're asking people to join us on Wednesdays at 4 o'clock um, down there. And, you know, there's also an online petition that people can find at our uh, social media links that they can sign saying that they believe Jackie Lacey should step down. Okay. Well, my guest, for those of you who've just joined us, is Malina Abdullah, an American academic and civic leader. She is co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. We are flying through the topics. We're going to run over a little bit this segment to my second one. Apologies to my second guest today. So voter suppression, it's becoming increasingly sophisticated. It's more targeted. Electoral strategies. Are there any Los Angeles and Southern California that Black Lives Matter is going into the midterm elections? 
I mean, we're absolutely concerned about the midterm elections and voter suppression. Um, there is um, the movement for black lives is engaged in a project called electoral justice. Um, we know that the, the people who are elected, especially in terms of local races, are hugely important. So we see, for instance, the dif- difference that District Attorney Larry Krasner in Philadelphia makes, right? Yes. His willingness to prosecute police and unwillingness to prosecute black folks who are not actually committing crimes when they're only like sitting in Starbucks, right? So we think that these elections are important. We also um, think that our rights are hugely important. So even if you think that, you know, all of them are crooked and, you know, you're probably right on 99% of them, right? Right. Um, We still have the right we have a right to our vote. And so the idea of voter suppression is actually the trampling of rights. And if you think about, you know, the way in which Jeff Sessions has behaved and the way in which so many others have behaved, if our vote didn't matter, they wouldn't be so, um, you know, committed to suppressing it. And so we absolutely have to um, engage in that work and recognize that, votes also we've ne- nobody's ever voted their way to freedom right so when we engage in the vote what that does is soften up the ground for the kind of transformative work that we actually need to do by engaging every day so, and so that's kind of where we are on the midterms as black lives matter we're not um, even though we're part of the electoral justice campaign we're also um, much more of a protest organization than an electoral organization. Okay, that distinction is important. So last Sunday, the national prison strike, which was taking place at least in 17 states, this calls on the 13th Amendment that's baked into the economy, an entire labor pool that is in manufacturing. So did you have anything, Melina Abdullah, to say about either the, any outcomes or what kind of coverage um, you noticed this strike of th- the third strike in the, la- the last was at five years? Well, I'm very disappointed that mainstream media is not really covering the prison strike. I think it's hugely significant. We haven't seen this kind of solidarity um, in the previous prison strikes. So, oh, is that right? Um, you know, I think that, of course, Ava DuVernay's film, 13th, did a tremendous job raising how prisoners actually stand as the new enslaved people, right? That the 13th Amendment to the Constitution doesn't provide freedom to incarcerated people. And it's not coincidental that when you talk about people who are locked in cages, what they look like is what most of our folks who were enslaved looked like, right? Um, And so we have to be um, aware of what that is, and we have to struggle alongside it. We have to uh, 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 struggle alongside them. We have to understand that these are our uncles, our aunts, our mothers, our fathers, and um, their incarceration isn't really a result of something they've done, but a structure that wants to keep them in prison, especially when we think about the school-to-prison pipeline, when we think about the way in which people are criminalized for their mental health. Um, Here in Los Angeles, it's the largest jailer in the world. I'm actually on my way to the Board of Supervisors meeting. Um, We 
qualified for the ballot uh, an initiative that would move the $3.5 billion jail expansion to mental health resources and preventative and intervention programs rather than expanding jails. They're actually proposing that rather than kind of um, decriminalizing folks for things that aren't really crimes, that they'll do things like incarcerate mothers with their children or build a well, what they call a wellness village to incarcerate people for their mental health conditions. So all that's to say we absolutely have to stand with our incarcerated brothers and sisters and stand alongside um, formerly incarcerated people as well who are coming home. So the next item in our uh, robust list of what's going on in the sort of hard wiring in public policy, it's the bail reform. It was signed into law last week by Governor Brown. There's a 13-month sort of interim period to set up this how this program's going to go. I'm going to have Jeffrey Clayton talk uh, later this month on the show about uh, the shortcomings with the algorithm biases. I want to give you an opportunity, Melina Abdullah, to respond to what that bail bond reform means to Black Lives Matter. Sure. So just very quickly, that is, it was a, a setup. It was a setback. We called it Setback 10 right? Um, What it did is it used the work that we've done to say that we want to end bail, end cash bail, right? Um, We're one of only two countries in the world that does pretrial incarceration. Um, That absolutely should not exist. It still has a cash bail system, right? That absolutely should not exist. But what SB 10 does is give discretion to the same judges that overly incarcerate black people, that overly incarcerate poor people, um, that overly criminalize our youth. It gives them the discretion to determine whether or not people get out pretrial. And so, um, you know, I think that us, like almost every other progressive organization, right, um, L.A. CAN, Los Angeles Community Action Network, led a lot of that work, right, um, along with the ACLU jumped off eventually, right? Um, We see the writing on the wall. So that means that we have to double down on our demand to end pretrial incarceration, period. We don't want the judges locking our folks up. We don't want anybody locking our folks up. There is uh, something in this country we talk about justice as being embedded in justice as being innocent until proven guilty. Instead, we incarcerate people just based on allegations. So thank you. The next uh, topic while we're, I think I'm going to shoehorn just two big heady ones in uh, in deference to uh, all the plans we've made here. College sports as a career choice skews to players from lower income households instead of studying engineering, medical, business, and other careers in order to avoid the debt and pursue a more lucrative athletic career. Albert Samaha, last Sunday in the New York Times, wrote up a lovely op-ed piece, and I'm just going to quote a line and have you respond. Football reflects this country's racial caste system, mostly black players sacrificing their bodies for the entertainment of a mostly white audience. This dynamic is likely to become more pronounced. And he didn't even get to the, you know, the CTE uh, findings of the um, neurobiological assault to these elites' brains. So did you want to respond to that, Malina Abdullah? 
I mean, just very quickly, I think that black people turn to sports and entertainment because it's one of the only avenues that's actually um, a more fair uh, uh playing ground, right, playing field, right, Um, more fair. It's not fair, but it's more fair. And so I think that what we need to get to is why are we locked out of every other industry, right? Um, And, you know, I'm not an expert on sports. (laughs) I'm not an expert on the way in which things happen. But I do see the exploitation of athletes as well, but the exploitation of black people um, as kind of – you know, the entertainment for for white, mostly middle-class and wealthy spectators. And then as far as structural sorts of maldistribution of resources, there's a, it's right down to the libraries. That's a, there was actually another op-ed piece in the same paper that the irony of the wealth of in Silicon Valley is up the street, you've got all the main tech home offices, and down the street you have San Jose libraries reducing their services. So I don't know if there's a Black Lives Matter look at the uh, the justice of, you know, civic services that are provided to level some of the playing field and opportunities. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely have to work on those things. You know, we have to work on the expansion of resources. Okay. So this is just a little... Uh, opportunity for me to shoehorn. There's a lovely gallery in Santa Ana. It's the 6 67 gallery. An African American artist, Lorenzo Baker, he calls it, um, it's, his, it's a February project. It's what happens if the month of February never ended. And he's trying to bring to us not the firsts, but the the constant contributions coming. And uh, he started this in February 1st, 2017, and it's centered around daily practice of creating and distributing reinterpretations of historical and contemporary images. I just want to put a plug in there for people and for you, Melina, to know about that. Come and meet me down here in Santa Ana. See that. <laughs> They're going to be celebrating through October 14th there. So it's a it's an extraordinary one. Well, we have zero time left to bring up what happened with the Aliso High School, Santa Ana High school match with some some provocations that need to be addressed. I guess we'll save that for another day. We have Serena Williams standing her ground on the court. Very complex reactions to that. I'm, I'm sorry we're not going to be able to, <laughs> unless you want to just close out on either one of those sports arenas of leveling playing fields. I would love to. I really have to run to this action. Um, you know, of course, We need to um, support both of them, but especially Serena. And we have to think about what's happening, that cartoon that came out, the horrific cartoon that came out yesterday, you know, I think shows how prevalent racism, sexism, misogyny, and those old um, tropes are still, you know, they're still really present, the caricatures and um, demeaning way in which black women especially are presented. And so, you know, um, we have tremendous love and respect for Serena. Um, and, you know, send her out some love and, and do some work in her honor, you know. All right. So I, I, I'm running to this um, action now, but I really appreciate the time. So I want to thank you so much for giving us this time, Melina. Thank you. My guest was Melina Abdullah, and she 
was uh, she's the co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter and head of the Pan-African Studies at California State University LA. We'll be right back with my next guest, Nuha Isak, nonprofit professional aiding refugees and an immigrant from Yemen. Stay close. Thanks for staying tuned. That was Tina Raymond, Lift Every Voice and Sing. Thank you for everybody staying with us. 17 years after the 9-11 attacks in the United States, we could note a deafening, a deepening irony when considering the status quo in Yemen. The majority of culprits in the 9-11 flights were Saudi. Zero came from Yemen. A reminder, folks, that the White House launched a Navy SEAL mission in rural Yemen a week after the president's inauguration. Then Muslim bands one, two, and three named Yemen as a terrorist nation. And caught in the middle of this proxy war in American foreign policy to personalize these times for us is my guest, Nuha Isak, Yemenese national and a five-year resident of Orange County. Nuha Isak is a nonprofit specialist. She earned her bachelor's degree in French language in Sana'a University in Yemen, that's the capital, and her master's degree in nonprofit management and a graduate degree in leadership from Regis University in Denver. Nuha graduated with honors in the top of her cut. From an early age, Nuha has been working and volunteering in different sectors toward the betterment of society, female empowerment, education, rights of minors, and helping the poor and refugees. In Yemen, Nuha worked in the United Nations Development Program, Yemen Liquefied Natural Gas Company, and an American embassy in Yemen. After getting married in 2008, she moved to the States to live with her husband. She's worked and volunteered in different nonprofit organizations while pursuing her master's degree. In 2013, she moved to Irvine with her small family and worked as a case manager in a local grassroots nonprofit organization. She works with people in need, including refugees in Orange County, providing them with necessary resources to live a better life. As you soon will hear, New straddles both societies in Yemen and USA. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Nuha Isak. Thank you for having me, Claudia. Well, the war is taking a huge toll mm -hmm. on Yemenese civilians. Talk to us, Nuha, first about how civil society is collapsing in all situations, please. Sure. Um, let me talk to you first, Claudia, about the um, Yemen through my eyes. Yes. Um, Yemeni people are very attached to their land. They love their land, they love their houses, they love their homes, and they're very proud of their uh, long, uh, civilized history. Um, you know, a Yemeni person would see his house like a part of his family. It's inherited generation after generation. Um, so it's hard for him to sell his house and to move to another neighborhood, let alone leave his house and, you know, move to another country. So uh, the war is making a very difficult choice for Yemenis. Um, um, the war now is destroying everything, everything. And so let's, let's break that da down. The infrastructure is eroding 
precipitously. And so for you to, to break down all those sectors where no one can rely on the, the safety and the health of right. the, a system working in what otherwise should be known in civil society. Nuha. Right. So the war is destroying the public infrastructure. It's, um, um, for those who doesn't know, it is a Saudi-led coalition. Um, the war started in March 22nd, 2015 where um, it expl uh, yeah, everything is destroyed in Yemen. Um, airstrikes, uh, naval blockade, no food, no electricity, no fuel, um, no hospitals. Now imagine, imagine Claudia, if you wake, if you sleep and you don't know that you're, you know, you're waking up alive. Imagine if you, um, if you, if you hear the sounds of aircraft hovering over and you don't know where is the next rocket ship is going to explode is it going to be in your house your neighbor house in your friend imagine if you if you don't know where is, when is the next meal um, you know uh, you're going to have um, people are without salaries um, um, 70 percent of the companies has been closed people have no incomes um, there is a malnutrition um, 2.2 million of children are are um, are starving. They're malnourished, and um, 10 million people are in brink of famine. So the war is destroying everything. Um, so the Yemeni person, uh, if he if if he did not die from a rocket ship, he will die from a famine or a disease. Uh, the death is surrounding Yemenis from everywhere. So. This poses, I mean, it's such extreme, and, and you didn't even mention like like water supply. Everything is sort of shutting, exactly. shutting off. Medical medicine isn't making it in. The airport is is Explode. being systematically destroyed. So uh, all manner of supplies, routes, escape routes are all shutting down. So it's people it's are not trapped. like people are yeah. deciding that it just might be a nice idea to come over to Southern California. It's, no, it's, no, it's, it, so. Uh, your own, and you were telling me in preparation for this interview, Nuha, that you call, I, how often do you call your family? Every day. In Sanaa, you call them every day. I call them and every day. And this is, uh, I don't know what it sounds like in the background. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the uh, what they register. They're probably having to sort of mediate the, the kind of emotion in their voices so uh, yeah. that you're getting to a certain um, mm -hmm. commentary together without their distressing you about their situation, but you're calling mainly to make sure they're still alive. alive. Right. Whether they're well is another topic. Yeah. So when I, um, ev every day I call my mom to check on her and the family. Um, I, I recall one day I called my mom and um, I heard a huge explosion happened close to our house and you know my mom was yelling my nieces and nephews were yelling and it was it was very terrifying moment um you know the the the, the phone yeah i mean she closed the phone uh, hang up the phone um for half an hour i was calling everyone i was calling my dad i was calling you know my neighbors to check on them and no one answered it was a very terrifying moment, and I thought they all dead. And um, and then my dad called me um, half an hour after the explosion happened, and he told me we're okay, we we survived this time, you know. So it's it's really difficult, very terrifying situation, and 
You know, I feel like I, I live in two different worlds. I live in Orange County, where it's a piece of heaven, you know. I'm, I'm lucky that I'm, I'm here with my kids. And, uh, but part of me lives in, in Yemen. Uh, part of me lives in, in, you know, Yemen is now it's literally hell. In, you know, in, in, in the earth. Um, so it's really hard for me even to bring my family now with the Muslim ban. Um, it, they, they don't have any choice but, you know, to stay there. And as an American citizen, I have the right to bring my parents. However, the Muslim ban is preventing me from that. And it's not a luxury anymore to bring my family, to, you know, to hang out with them. No, it is not. It's a matter of life and death. And, you know, I remember um, when I first got married 10 years ago, um, I was convincing my parents to come and live with me. And they were like, no way, you know, we were settling down there. My dad is an engineer. My mom is a teacher. They have a huge community. They love their house. They love their family. They love neighbors. There is no way for them to move to another country. You know, they're happy there. Although Yemen is one of the poorest countries in the Middle right, East. Right, right. But they're... They're happy. I mean, they're calm. They're, you know. So now they are urging me that they want to leave. They're urging me and they think they, they have a ho- the, the only hope for them is to go out of Yemen, is to come to America because, you know, it's the only safe place for them at this point. So you're talking about keeping in contact. And so I imagine in the back of your mind, I'm not trying to be like really adding to your distress, but I'm sure, I mean, it's important for us all to consider is you still have communications infrastructure intact, but I imagine in the back of your head, you're thinking, when, how, how long do we have this, this lifeline of talking each day? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, um, it's the, the situation is going, is getting worse and worse. And, um, it, it's not going to be like this for so long. If, if no one, you know, the, the war did not stop, people are, um, you know, are going to be are suffering a lot. Um, electricity and water and fuel um, is, you know, there's a shortage. Um, now with the plucade, uh, the naval plucade, um, I think th- it, it's not going to be for so long. And it has to be a rapid and, um, and immediate um, stop for this war. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Nuha Isak. She's a nonprofit professional aiding refugees and homeless people here in Orange County, and she's an emigre from Yemen. We're talking about her one foot being planted in idyllic blala land here in, in Orange County, yeah. and another foot planted in her beloved Yemen. So you mentioned, we're talking about the Muslim ban, preventing your family from safely joining you here. Mm-hmm. Because now this proxy war is, is shutting down absolutely everything that civil society offers. Right. And looking around about where this, it's, it's a moving target with this Muslim ban. I'm really, it's a ban that was to end and it was going to be ex- reconsidered and extended. So I, it's lost on me actually. It's very hard to find out when the ban would be lifted or how that's being administered. There's that issue. And then the issue of there previously were exceptions and waivers made, but that seems to have dried up. So in this ban is such a blunt instrument that people imperiled in their countries where proxy wars are being waged, there is 
there is no way to get out of those hills. Right. So you're talking about your family members here. Tell us about your siblings. They're, you've told me in preparation for this, they're yeah. age 22, 20, and 19. Mm-hmm. What are they doing with their young adult lives? What do they plan? What, do, what can they aspire to in this situation in Yemen? Well, uh, before the war, they had, you know, huge plan. One of them want to be a doctor, one of them want to be an engineer. And, you know, um, you know, they were educated in a very good schools. And, you know, we were hoping something, you know, um, very good for them in the future. But now it's funny. Um, ironically, their plan is to flee the country. Okay. This is their plan. So they want to, um, if they, they know if they want to have a better future, the best way is not to stay in Yemen. So we, I talked about the, the condition of the airport earlier. And so um, in preparing for this, I, I'm realizing that this, the airport, in the condition it is in, it's forcing refugees to take other routes that are right. more perilous. Right. I don't know, potentially more expensive, more uncertain. So what, Dangerous. So, yeah. and are, so you're talking about this on the phone calls about how they're doing this? Or and, and how, maybe they can't, maybe they don't feel like they could say it on the phone what they plan to do. How, does, how do those complications <laughs> manifest? So for them um, to flee the country, they want to have a secure plan and an, a definite plan for them that um, it's worth to flee the country because they cannot, there is no airport, as you said. They have to go through a very dangerous road for a whole day with a lot of uh, checkpoints and armed people. So for them to do that and to sacrifice from going to uh, out of Yemen, they would rather do that if they have, you know, a, a secure plan. And certainty. And a certainty. But, you know, a lot of people, they go to Djibouti. It's the closest American um, embassy okay. from Yemen. So they go through all this dangerous road. And when they go to Djibouti, they're stuck there. And they're stuck in a limbo situation where they're waiting for their visa. And are there, I, I, are I there know, a lot of people there oh now? Yeah, I know a lot of people. Thousands. Have, a lot of people have been stuck in Djibouti. And, you know, there is, I don't know if you heard about the Yemeni guy who just committed suicide in New York. He's a father who has been waiting for his family for three years. And they're all stuck in Djibouti. And he couldn't, you know, afford paying for the rent because it's six times more than the rent in Yemen. So uh. he, when the ban happened, he just, you know, lost all his hope and he committed suicide. And this is one of the stories, so many stories that, you know, uh, the ban is giving the American citizens an option where they need to send their family back literally to the missiles and bullets, you know. So it's, it's a lot of, you know, sad uh, stories that happens from friends and family who have been surrounding there, um, stuck there, and they had to go back because they couldn't get the visa. So, Nuha, this begs the thought I have. The more I get acquainted with you and with others who've come to Southern California, I get this sinking feeling, this distinct impression, these kinds of blunt instruments like the the travel ban, Mm. they deprive all of us rich human connections. We're we're talking about you're being deprived of having your family be safe and be proximate to you, but I... 
I, I, we talked about the zero sum game in the first section mm-hmm. of this program. And so would you talk to us um, or share your, what you're experiencing on a personal level with people in Southern California, Orange County, where the immigration discussions framed in this zero sum thing that a, a loss, a, a gain in ratcheting up travel bans is somehow you know, it, it, it's definitely a loss. But we don't the, the frame of it of immigration policy taking a more sort of an open, inclusive opportunistic kind of sensibility is getting missed in the national debate. So I, I, I guess I just wanted to pl- put that out there because you, you have, you know, in your encounters, people must reconsider what they think about immigration policy when right. they get to know you. So are you, can you give us maybe a, a, in, as a last question today together, what your experience is of bringing turning on its head the zero-sum game, that right. you are here, you are abundant in your contributions. Nobody is losing anything by bringing one Yemenese woman yeah. with her family and potentially her extended family here. Right. See, um, Yemeni people are hardworking people. Um, um, they appreciate, you know, uh, a place where it gives them dignity. Um, they they work hard, they strive, and um, and for them to 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 leave the war zone and to live in a safer place they'll owe um you know america for life i'll give you a story of um, one of my uncles who his house was uh, destroyed by their airstrike um he has the most beautiful house of our family and our uh, family reunion used to be in that house uh, you know every summer um, an airstrike last month um, hit that house, um, and it's now collapsed. But luckily, um, he's not uh, in the house. Luckily, he's in Canada with, you know, his um, his son has sponsored him in Canada. Okay. And when I called him, I don't know what to tell him. Um, I'm sorry about the house. I'm sorry. He told me, uh, you know, Naha, I'll tell you something. I owe Canada my life and my family's life. You know, and they, he really appreciate that place that he lives in, and he he works really hard to make it a better place and to outreach to people, and I think this is you know what's going to happen to 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 the uh, to Yemenis as well. I mean, uh, when they come to U.S., immigration is preventing them from reunion with their families. I mean. I, I don't see any humanity in that. I I don't see what's the point. Um, why are the, I mean, why are they doing that? And therein, the nuance of expressing humanity that is a, a vast contribution in civil society and the irony that that, that nuance is uh, um, lost in this immigration discussion and mm-hmm. that we're foreclosing. We're, we don't know what we're missing out on at this point. Right. It's, it, so I don't know. And just in closing, just quickly, any, any up-and-coming events Perhaps media that you endorse is the best media for following what's going on in Yemen in 2018. See, unfortunately, a lot of media, they don't speak fair about Yemen because they're, you know, either U.S. baked or um, Saudi. But I would say Reuters and BBC uh, UK is uh, the closest one that's being a little bit fair about what's going on in Yemen. Okay. And I, I, I want to tell you something yes. about the... Uh, you know, I feel so saddened. The the arms that the Saudi used are 
uh, American made. And um, as an American citizen, I feel so angry and so devastated to know that our tax money going to kill innocent people in Yemen. So I would urge, you know, uh, people to uh, call to their senators and tell them about, you know, to stop the arms that has been sold to uh, the Saudis. To, to the Saudis, uh, because in this proxy war, in this proxy war, and also they support them by logistic and, you know, by um, intelligence. And this is something America should not do. Um, I really want to thank you so much for coming on the show, coming in studio today and, and joining me to talk about thank Yemen. Thank you for Let's having me. Thanking you. So um, I want to thank Nuha Isak, nonprofit professional aiding refugees and immigrants. She's an immigrant from Yemen. I want to thank her so much for being on the show today. I, I want to announce that on Friday this week, the Ardros Plaza at the Seekerstrom Center for Performing Arts celebrating the real Mexican independence with so many wonderful bookings. That's Friday, 5 to 9. And this week, I'm off to the Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. That's my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on UCI researcher Dan Gillen. He'll cover all the facets of the upcoming 29th Annual Alzheimer's Conference held on September 21st. That's quite soon. And the second segment will be anthropologist Patricia Martz on another event.